just to over-communicate to you so that you know Seven Mile Road is going from being one church that has one Sunday service that meets at one location. This is probably about half of us right now, so you can imagine when two-thirds or 75% of us are here, this room is just utterly and completely overpacked. By God's grace, we've secured a space three miles that way to begin having a second Sunday service in the city of Melrose. There's a flyer on or near your chair. There's a typo right in the middle. Don't tell Katie or Grace because I'll be in trouble. But just over-communicating so that you know if you're a Malden person or east-west, south of Malden, this will be your Sunday service from which you will worship God, be knit together with this flock, and be doing mission. If you're north of here, Melrose, east and west and north, we're asking you to jump to the Melrose Sunday service That will be your flock. Be knit together with them for discipleship and mission. We will free up seats. We will pray. We will preach. We will love. We will give our lives for our neighbors and seek for God to continue to do this, to grow us beyond our space and to multiply uh, Sunday services while we are multiplying smaller communities. That's what we're up to. So next week is our last all-together Sunday, Palm Sunday. will be a great time. Easter Sunday. The lady from Canada swore to me that the chairs will be here for, the, for this Melrose space before then. We'll be doing the 10 a.m. here, 11 a.m. there. Still one church functioning in the same kind of way. Instead of doing two services in this room, the second service is going to happen three miles that way for missional purposes. If you have any questions, if you don't know which site you should be going to on Sundays, talk to myself or any of our pastors. We've had a mess of conversations with a lot of you. If we missed you or if you're new, would love to help with that transition, which comes in two weeks. Uh, Be praying toward that. Okay, we are back in Mark's gospel together this week. We're actually preaching from a single verse today, just one, and this will make sense in a minute. Remember where we are in this story at the very end or the climax of what Mark gives us as Galilean conflicts, these five fights, tussles, arguments that Jesus finds himself a part of. If you are brand new to Jesus and to the Gospels, you probably were not expecting this to be a mark of his life. You were probably thinking baby holding, lamb petting, dress wearing, green hill sitting, feathery long hair that flowed right off his shoulders, Jesus. He would never be in a fight or an argument. And the cross that comes at the end of his life is just some strange, sad, weird left turn to his very peaceful existence for for the time that he was on earth. Well, we have seen that that's just false, that Jesus was a fighter and a scrapper. Conflict followed him wherever he went. Uh, We see that he was purposefully confrontational even at times. In the bigger text that Brent Brent read with us before, we, we see that side of Jesus. Jesus purposely calls the man with the withered hand out in front of the crowd and then purposely looks at the Pharisees in the audience and says, do you want me to heal him or not? And then there's dead air. Can you feel that? Everybody in the room is looking at the man and looking at the Pharisees and looking at Jesus and looking at the man and looking at the Pharisees and looking at Jesus That is drama. That is Jesus pressing the issue here. 
That is Jesus showing courage. That is a very intense scene. This is who Jesus was. If you think he was all children and lambs and dresses and hillsides, and then the cross comes in at the end, you're misunderstanding the man and his mission. The cross of Christ is not a surprising left turn at the end of Jesus' life. It is the culmination of three years of these kinds of conflicts happening. And in our text today, in this one verse, the cross of Christ begins to come into view. You just get a little kind of foreshadowing of it, but you start to feel it. The conflicts have been escalating, and here they hit a crescendo. And at the end of them, we come across today a very dark verse in the Bible. And it is also a very surprising, very unexpected, I never would have believed it if you told me that this verse was in the Bible, kind of a verse. It's a remarkable sentence that gives us a hint of where the story is going, but it also sums up one of the most important themes in the New Testament, and really, in your life, my life, all of human life and human history. So let me read this verse again to you, and I'll pray and we'll get into this. Mark 3, 6, after these conflicts have ended, the Pharisees have walked away from Jesus, showing them up. This is the verse. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. All right, let's pray. Father, would you let your spirit be with us? illuminating, animating, bringing clarity and helpfulness to your word. Uh, Thank you for your call to have pastors, sinful, fleshly, imperfect pastors stand before us and humble us that we might receive your word through them. Uh, Today you give me this role and so I pray that my words would not get in the way but would be helpful and that the hearts of the people, my friends, this flock that you've given to me that they would gladly hear the word of God. So come do this work in us and shape us. We're yours. Hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. Do it. Okay, West Side Story. I'm allowed to go there because my mother's a Puerto Rican who grew up in Brooklyn. I know she doesn't look like it, but she cooks like it. I also spent the first 10 years of my life in, living in New York, which meant my summer times were literally spent at the chain-linked fence schoolyard playing stickball, PS30. So naturally, I have seen the West Side Story three, four hundred times, somewhere in there, something like that. I won't dance for you. In this movie, you've got the Sharks and you've got the Jets, and they are enemies. They've got nothing in common except their desire to see each other eliminated from the street. These two groups and these two gangs would not play together, would not dance together, would not share a meal together. If one came across the other bleeding out on the sidewalk, they would just turn their head, walk to the other side of the street, and keep going. Until the very last scene in the movie, every time you see the sharks and the jets together, they are at each other's throats. They're fighting in the schoolyard. They're competing at the school dance. They're rumbling under the highway. All movie long, these mortal enemies are against each other, except, except for this one 60-second scene. In this scene, they're all at the corner store together, 
and they're setting the parameters for the rumble that's going to take place later on that night, and they're going back and forth at each other, and suddenly the door opens and the cops arrive, and it's Lieutenant Shrank. And for about 60 seconds there, in order to avoid suspicion and not have their plans dismantled, the sharks and the jets suddenly get along great. Have you seen this? They go all smiles. They pretend that they're playing darts and playing cards and sharing soda pop with each other. And then Lieutenant Shrank leaves the room, closes the door, and as quickly as it all began, it's over, and they're back at each other's throats. All right, now, five minutes before that scene, if you were watching the West Side Story with a friend who had never seen the play, read the book, watched the movie before, and you told them, hey, I bet you $100 there's a scene coming up where the sharks and the jets are just going to get along great. What would that person say to you? You're on. I will take that bet right now. Have you been watching this movie with me? Nothing could bring these two enemies together. These guys hate everything about each other. But what your friend did not take into account was the possibility of what? Of a third party entering the room. A third party that was a threat to the plans of both the sharks and the jets. A third party about whom both agreed, hey, we need to come together for a minute so that he doesn't have his way with us. Do you guys feel the surprise of that? This is what happens in this one verse that we're working through together today. This is the surprise, the shock that you're supposed to feel when you read that the Herodians and the Pharisees have come together. All right, let's talk about the Herodians first. I'll try and do my right hand when I'm talking Herodians. The Herodians were supporters of the Herods. This was the dynasty of the puppet kings that ruled in the northern section of Palestine on behalf of the Romans. Uh, This is how this would work. The Roman Empire was big and huge and ugly and stanky and vast and aggressive empire. Their goal was basically domination of the known world. As the Romans conquered new lands, what they would do was to prop up local rulers who knew the local scene and the local people and the local customs, and would be able to keep the local peace, to represent the rule of Rome far away from the city of Rome. All that Rome was looking for from these potential rulers was that they would buy into the basics of their imperial program. Boiled down to three things. One, collect taxes well so that the Roman machine can keep on going. You have to be able to do that. Number two, promote Hellenism, uh, the Greekifying of culture. Promote Roman values, Roman view of the body, Roman understandings of philosophy. Have those be normalized in whatever area we're putting you in charge of. And three, a big one, crush any troublemakers. Anybody who's going to cause riots, come against Rome, or disturb the peace, You crush them. If you were willing and able to do those three things, 
Rome would make you rich and powerful beyond your wildest dreams. And the Herods were all over that deal, all over it. As you would imagine, the Herods were Jewish, but they were not very good Jews. They and those who supported them were wicked, immoral, compromised people. I need you to feel this. Say it like this. If there was a commandment, Herods and Herodians found a way to break it. History and scripture show us that the Herods were viciously violent and sexually corrupt and politically corrupt. Later on in this series, we're going to preach through the death of John the Baptist. And in that story, you will see the snapshot of Herod and Herodians. The king had taken his brother's wife, which was sinning. The woman that he was sinning sexually against and he get together and throw this massive keg party. She then gets her daughter to come and dance, uh, lap dance basically for the crowd. Herod is half drunk and a total sinful loser. And so he promises her he'll do anything for her. And the mother twists things so that it's John the Baptist, that holy man's head on a platter that they receive. The one who had rebuked them because of their sin gets beheaded. Do you feel all that ugliness and sin? Okay, that's a snapshot, a picture of what it meant to be a Herodian. Charlie Sheen would have loved this crew. This would have been his tribe right here. No regard for the law of God. Consorting with Gentiles and pagans in bed with them. No problem with the cosmopolitan pagan values of Rome. It's all good with us. Our ethics will move with the times. A life of moral compromise. You might call them hedonists, relativists, progressives. The word I'm going to use today is irreligious. Now hold that thought for a moment, and let's come to this hand and talk about the Pharisees. All right? Total opposite side of the spectrum. The movement of the Pharisees was about 200 years old at the time at the time of this text. It was made up of about 6,000 people, which was only 1% of the population at the time, but it was filled with leaders, and so it was a very influential group. That's because in the common Jewish mind, the Pharisees, they sat in the seat of Moses, which meant they were to be respected. They were the authoritative spokesman for Yahweh. And the Pharisees were staunchly opposed to Hellenism, hated the idea of accommodating to Roman values and Roman ideals. They were leaders of the cultural resistance movement. They called for a return to traditional moral values according to the Hebrew scriptures. They built these massive hedges around themselves to keep them from consorting with, touching, going near Romans, Gentiles, pagans. The Pharisees were Jews, and they were incredible Jews. You could say it like this, if there was a commandment, these guys found a way to keep it. And not just the Ten Commandments, all 513 or so commandments that they had parsed out of the Hebrew Scriptures, and then they dropped all of their traditions on top of that. That's who the Pharisees were. Charlie Sheen would not have made it as a Pharisee. The highest possible regard for the law of God. 
never consorting with Gentiles, refused to embrace the cosmopolitan moral values of Rome, did not let their ethics move with the times, were anchored to the letter of the Torah, lived a life of moral confrontation. The Pharisees were moralists, legalists, conservatives. The word that I'll start using today, religious. So what do we have going on here? We've got Herodians, irreligious to their core, and we've got Pharisees, religious to their core. This is oil and water. This is country music and good music. (laughs) This is sharks and jets. The very last thing that you expect to read in your Bible is a verse where the Herodians and the Pharisees are holding counsel together. And yet this is exactly what we see in our Bible. And it begs the question this morning, what could possibly bring these guys together around the same conference table? What could possibly have these two groups being of the same mind? Answer, Jesus and his gospel. A third party has entered the room. They have to get rid of Jesus. Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. So it's the Pharisees who initiate the meeting. That makes sense. They're the ones who have been at the center of this Galilean conflict Jesus has finally pushed him over the edge with the stunt of bringing the withered man out before everyone and embarrassing them and slamming them in that conflict. They walked out of that synagogue and they met immediately and they were agreed, we need to destroy this rabbi Jesus of Nazareth. We need to silence this gospel that he is preaching. But since they were not a political party, could they accomplish that on their own? They couldn't do it. They needed some help. They needed the Herodians and their political power to join them in this cause. They couldn't just kill Jesus themselves. That would be to break a commandment. And so they needed to find someone to team up with them to get this done. They are willing to betray everything that they supposedly stood for and to consort with the liberal, decadent, law-breaking Herodians because they had to get rid of Jesus. And notice that the Herodians do not dismiss the Pharisees when they come calling, but they agree to hold counsel with them, the ones who had been so critical of their lifestyle. Why would they do that? Here's why. Because Jesus and his gospel were a threat to both of them. Both of them. And with the Pharisees, that threat is obvious from the last five weeks and will continue to be very obvious to you if you hang with us in Mark's gospel. Jesus is a great threat to their influence over the common people. Jesus is a threat to the whole status quo of the religious structure that their paycheck and their prestige and their reputation is built in and weaved into. Jesus is constantly making them look bad in front of those whose support they need. The crowds are loving this new Jesus, and the Pharisees realize 
We have to destroy this rival of ours because if we don't, his movement could destroy ours. You feel that? But Jesus was just as much of a threat to the Herodians. Jesus was a repentance calling prophet, just like who? Just like his cousin, John the Baptist. And they know that it is inevitable that the same collision that happened between John and Jesus, uh, John and Herod, is going to happen between John, between Jesus and Herod eventually. I got it. Even worse for them is this. Jesus is preaching a gospel, you guys. He is proclaiming a kingdom. He is being heralded and talked about as a potential Messiah. And all of that is bad news for the Herodians. They see Jesus as a threat to Herod's kingship and reign for sure. And the Herodians knew how these Messiah movements always ended. You can read about the history of Messiah movements around the time of Christ. They always ended the same way. Uprisings of the people, soldiers, sword, chaos, blood. And Rome did not like it when their underrulers allowed chaos in the empire. They knew that they would not be happy if Herod let that happen on his watch. And so every single day that Jesus was allowed to gain more appeal among the crowds, the threat to the Herodian dynasty grew larger and larger. And so these guys too realize Jesus is a great threat to us. If we do not get him destroyed, his movement could destroy ours. And so you have Herodians and you have Pharisees, two seemingly disparate gangs. They actually have a lot in common right here. And they are agreed, Jesus and his gospel have to go. Now what I want us to see today is that it is always that way with religion and irreligion and the gospel. Always that way. With liberalism and moralism and the gospel or whatever you want to call these two categories and the gospel. They are two opposite sides, yes, but opposite sides of what? Of the same coin, a coin that despises Jesus and his cross and his gospel. Uh, Tertullian, one of the great church fathers, said this so well. I read this week. In, in, in speaking of religion and irreligion, he says this. Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification, in other words, the gospel itself, is ever crucified between two opposite errors. In other words, what? Religion and irreligion may be opposite thieves, but at the end of the day, they're both thieves. And both of them are out to accomplish the same theft to rob you of the gospel. Religion and irreligion seem to be completely dead set against each other, don't they? Until what walks into the room? Until gospel walks into the room. And then you realize, whoa, these two are very much alike. Here's what I mean. Whether we are religious or irreligious, we both downplay the depth of our sin 
We both upplay our ability to save ourselves, and so we both dismiss our need for the gospel. If we are irreligious, this is how it works. Get the next issue of the improper Bostonian or the Boston Phoenix, and you will see this on full display in your city. Read either paper. We say, look, God is not that holy. Sin is not really serious. God's law is not absolute and binding on me. Oh, no. There is no judgment coming for anyone. I can live as I please. Just like Herod, I'll take my brother's wife if I want to. And anyway, I'm basically a good person. And I am definitely better than all the religious people who think that they are better than other people. I'm better than them. I'm all set. This is the way that we live. You guys live with 99% of our culture feeling and sounding and believing like that. But then what happens? Jesus and his gospel walks in the room. And Jesus insists to the irreligious Herodian, to the improper Bostonian, you have it wrong. God is way holier than you ever imagined. And your sin is way worse than you ever imagined. But also, God's love is much deeper than you ever imagined. And if you will repent of your irreligion and fly to the cross of his son, there is hope for your soul. But we won't do it. And so we seek instead to deny and to destroy anything that reeks of Jesus or that gospel. If we are irreligious, here's how this works. We say, look, God is holy. Sin is serious. God's law is absolute, and it is binding on me right here. There is a judgment coming, and I can't just live how I please. So I'm going to work really hard at being a moral person. And I'm definitely going to be better than all those irreligious people. And I will be all set because my morality, my religion, my good works, my not having my brother's wife will get me there. But then what happens? In walks Jesus in his gospel and says the same exact thing. Insisting to the religious Pharisee, you have it wrong. God is much holier than even you ever imagined. And your sin is way more serious than even you, perfectly behaving person, ever imagined that it was. And you need to see that. Even your good works because they are done with a heart that is self-righteous and calcified to God, are like filthy rags, even the best things that you point to. But also, God's love is much deeper than you had ever imagined. And if you will repent of your religion and fly to the grace of the cross of his son, there is hope for your soul. But we won't do it. And we want to hold on to our goodness and our good works. And so we must seek 
to destroy the message of this gospel of grace. Do you guys see with me how these are one and the same? Both deny the depth of their sin. Both are convinced that they're just fine living how they are today. Both recoil at the idea that they are the man with the withered hand. Recoil at the idea that they desperately need God's mercy and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on his cross for their salvation. Both religion and irreligion oppose gospel. And that truth runs straight through redemptive history. The book of Acts, talking to the men of Israel, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says these words, Men of Israel, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Can you guys hear it in there? What do the men of Israel and lawless men have in common? Nothing except when it came to Jesus and his gospel. Then they got together. Him they crucified. This is how it works. And as a gospel-loving, gospel-preaching, gospel-believing, church-planting church, we have to keep this truth and this text in mind. This was supposed to be the last sermon that I was going to preach to you guys together uh, as we broke up. I've been thinking really hard uh, about what we should be expecting as we break new missional ground in Melrose and then continue to do that up in Wakefield and reinvigorate our local mission here in Malden and wherever else Jesus will send us. I'm thinking, what should we be expecting? How can I be preparing the souls of this flock that God has given to me? How can I make sure that I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God, anything that was profitable? So here's what I want to tell you today. Here's one of the things you need to expect with us. Conflict. If we come in the name of Christ, proclaiming and believing his gospel to be necessary and to be true, we are going to offend a lot of people just north of Boston. On the one hand, we will be a great affront to the Bostonian, improper, Herodian, irreligious crowd. It's easy to see why, right? In this pulpit and those pulpits and in our smaller communities, we are going to call God's law good. We are going to call God holy. We are going to call sin very serious. We are going to call repentance mandatory. We're going to call obedience necessary. And lots of people will not like that. It has happened here in this room many, many times. I've been here as long as anybody. I could give you 50 examples. I preached one day on the glories of motherhood and the wisdom of God in the order of creation, and there was somebody who literally wanted to fist fight me in the alley after church. Did not like the good news that Jesus sets us free to embrace who we were created to be. As we plant new churches just north of Boston, as we keep going here in the life of this church, people are going to assume that because it's 2011, nobody really takes this seriously anymore, right? A new church is definitely going to have a big rainbow sign out front welcoming any and all behavior, sexual and otherwise, pretty much irreligious people 
who just want to do a church thing together. That is not the answer for the souls of the people we love just north of Boston. And so that will not be our message. And the irreligious who will not repent will not tolerate that kind of a gospel. And we could get really beat up over that. Be prepared. But just to even things out and to make you feel a little bit better, the response will be the same from the religious crowd. And here's the theme of the day. We are also going to be a total affront to the Bostonian pharisaical religious crowd, the ones that are aware about churches and church stuff. And it's very easy to see why. In this pulpit, in Melrose's pulpit, in Wakefield's pulpit, we are going to insist that justification is by faith alone. That sin is not out there somewhere. It's not in wearing the wrong shoes and not tucking your shirt in. That sin is inside of us, in here. That our good works merit nothing toward our salvation. That repentance for you, religious people, is mandatory. And a new kind of obedience from the heart to the intent of the law is necessary. And people will not like that either. That has happened a ton in this room at all. They're not the ones who want to fight me. They're just the ones who leave. We had this family with us for a year. They sat right over here. Two adorable elementary school children. And after about a year, the dad came up to me and just said, Matt, we love you guys, but we're leaving. You guys just talk about sin way too much for our comfort level. We just wanted a church that teaches our children how to be good. And I wanted to shake them. I didn't. I just wanted to shake them in love and say, yes. But that starts with your kids seeing that they're not good, that Jesus is, and they need his righteousness to live out of that. Religious people will not go there. We're not the ones with the withered hand. We don't need the grace of God. They do. We're fine. Whenever religious people hear about a new church getting planted, they get kind of excited. Good. I'm glad this is happening because what we need is more good people in the community who do good things and keep their little noses clean. And they think that we're going to show up and plant a church and just say, hey, everybody, read your Bibles, come to Sunday school, hold family values, and everything will be fine with you. And we're going to say no. Moralism, religion is not the answer for the souls of the people that we love just north of Boston. That will not be our message. No way. And the religious people who will not repent of their good works will not tolerate that kind of a gospel. And we could get really beat up over that. If we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to embrace his gospel and we're going to cling to his cross, we need to be ready for that together. But what's the other side to that struggle? Here it is. For those who God in his grace by his spirit is involved with. When Jesus and his gospel walk into the room and walk into their lives, there is repentance and there is faith and there is freedom from religion and irreligion 
And there is a throwing down of all self-righteousness. And there is this electricity to the gospel when you see, I am the man with the withered hand. Without the grace of God and the blood of Christ, I am lost. But a third party has stepped into the room. And Jesus has brought a gospel that is an affront to my irreligion, an affront to my religion, and I need it, and I want it, and it sets me free. In Christ, God's furious love offers freedom to sinners from both sides of the aisle to find life in his name. And so while we need to be ready for conflict and venom and angst and rolled eyes, Let's also be ready for Jesus to come and to become the salvation to many. All right, that's big seven-mile road application. Let's just finish and bring it home to you. Where are you in this verse? Where are you in this verse? Some of you are Herodians. You are improper Bostonians, and you're fine with that. You are fornicating away, you have your brother's wife, you're living sexually however you want, and you're all good with it. You're not tithing, you're spending more money on scratch tickets than you are giving to the redemptive work of God. You have a filthy mouth, you've got porn bookmarked, you are a joke at work, and you are completely fine with your life. Repent of your irreligion, find life and forgiveness and hope in Jesus' gospel. Do not seek to quiet or silence or destroy him. Receive him. Repent and believe. Some of you guys are Pharisees. You are absolutely not fornicating, and you do not have your brother's wife. You are absolutely tithing, and then some. You walk 37 different 5Ks for charity every single year. You never curse Not even those made-up Christian curses to replace real curses. (laughs) You're doing an awesome job at your day job. You're such a good person. But you are counting on all of that to be your righteousness, and it is not enough. Don't you dare try and stand before God with your good works. Fly to the cross of Christ with me and find power electric power, joy, freedom from self-righteousness, from self-sufficiency, from sin. When Jesus walks in the room, do not harden your heart against him to seek how you may silence him or destroy him. Receive him as your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray together.